Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I am your host, Monica Hadley, and Caroline won't be joining us today, but check back next week, and I think she'll be with us next week. By the way, we're recording this uh, June 1st, 2023, and Caroline's birthday is coming up in a week, and she will be 88, and as As our longtime listeners know, she's my mother, and she's been doing radio since, I don't know, she was in her 30s or something, so um, I'm still at it. Our guest today is Dr. Ellen Broughton, Ph.D., who is the Executive Director of the Learning and Emotional Assessment Program at Massachusetts General Hospital, an Associate Professor of Psychology at Harvard Medical School, Visiting Professor at Charles University in Prague, and I want to talk to her about Prague because I'm hoping to go there this year. And she's been affiliated with MGH and HMS since 1998, which is Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. She's widely recognized for her expertise in pediatric neuropsychological and psychological assessment, particularly in the areas of assessing learning disabilities and attentional disorders. And the book we're talking about today is Bright Kids Who Couldn't Care Less, How to Rekindle Your Child's Motivation. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Ellen. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I can't <laughs> wait to talk about the book and Prague. Oh, good. Now, would you prefer <laughs> I um, call you Dr. Broughton or Ellen? You you can definitely <laughs> call me Ellen. Okay, okay. Now, is this your first book? It's not my first book. I've written a number of books, a few books for parents, a few professional books on how to evaluate kids. And so I, I wrote another book that has a very similar title called um, Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up about kids who have trouble with processing information and keeping up with the fast-paced world we live in. And this book is, is not really a sequel to that, but it's sort of about those kids who can't keep up as they move on into life. So it's not just about those kids, but it's, it's, it's more about motivation in all kids, but but, right. Um, that's what got me started. And what motivated you to write this particular book? So I was seeing, I, I get sort of back to the, the other book that I wrote about processing speed. I was seeing a lot of kids who were struggling with motivation. And by that, I mean, parents were coming in and saying, yeah, you know, he's doing okay. But there's nothing that seems to really get him excited about living or about life. He's got no real interest or she doesn't care or, you know, they, they don't, they don't really care about things in the way that I think kids should care. And I thought that maybe that had something to do with the kinds of kids that I see as a psychologist. I, you know, I saw a lot of kids with that sort of slower process and even go, well, you know, maybe it's my population of kids that I tend to see. And then as I kind of looked at my data and the, and the sorts of kids that I see, I found that, no, it just wasn't a subgroup of kids. It really, it really cut across kids with different learning challenges, kids with ADHD, and, and a lot of kids who had no diagnosable disorder at all, but who were just not as happy as their parents thought they would be. So I had this idea for this book in 2019 and sort of played around with it with my editor. And then uh, 2020 happened. And we changed the book from one, right? We changed the book yeah. from, a, from a focus that really was about kids who were really having trouble with motivation and had like significant issues to one that kind of related to lots of kids. And to, to, and to be honest, 
to, to us too. Yes. That, you know, a lot of us are having trouble with motivating and motivating ourselves and, and finding what gives us pleasure and, and what really is important and makes life worth living. Oh, that is so true. And I, I'm right in that camp too. No. And I, I was recently told by a 13 year old when I was saying, you know, why, why don't kids want to go places and do things? And cause you know, like, when I was a kid or when my kids were kids, we didn't get to go places very much, hardly ever. And so any place we got to go right. was like so exciting. And, and it just seemed like kids weren't getting very excited about it. And I said, you know, this is really weird. And, he, and he's like, no, all kids are like this. Nobody, yeah, they all want to stay true. home. They all want to stay home. And, and often, you know, video games have a big part of it, but, but they just, I don't know, there's, I think there's a certain, that COVID caused a certain fear of being around other people that, that, and, and of course it did, because we told kids, you can't go anywhere, you can't see your friends, you can't uh, see your grandparents, and, and now, you know, now we're saying, oh, yeah, yeah, let's just go do everything, and they're not buying it. <laughs> No, they're not. And I think part of it definitely has to do with COVID. I mean, I, I, I see adults the same thing. Like, even for myself, I think twice about that invitation that you have where, where people say, oh, come as you can. A lot of times you don't. Yeah. And I think we're, we've lost our ability a little bit to socialize. But I think you also bring up another point, which is that kids are exposed to so much. I remember my daughter was now in her early 30s. When she was young, I, re- I remember a-, a friend saying she was like a year and a half. They said, oh, let's take her to the circus. And I thought to myself, if you're going to the circus at age one or two, what do you do at age 10? Like, it's, <laughs> we, we really, kids have so much exposure yeah. that they lose interest in something because, you know, I didn't get to go to the circus maybe once or twice in my life. And I was probably much older. You kind of waited. You had this anticipation that new and exciting things would happen in our lives. And now kids are international travelers. There's, there are lots of benefits that come from that. But there's also uh, this need for stimulation and, and also finding out, well, what do I want to do? Where do I want to go? That comes with too much stimulation, too. And I, I think part of... A big part of your book, as I was reading it, has to do with with that mismatch between, like, the parents, or in my case, grandparents' expectations of what should excite the kids because, boy, we didn't get to do any of this, and, and isn't this great that you get to do all this? And maybe it's it's like we're trying to live vicariously through the kids, and it's not what they want, and we're not paying attention to what they want sometimes. That's absolutely true. And we want to involve them in ways that we didn't get involved with when we were kids. So it was a very different world, even just one, even just 20 years ago, but definitely 30 and 40 years ago and more, where the adult world was very different. So, you know, adults would take trips and leave kids with grandparents, or they just didn't have money to take trips. Uh, we do live in a more affluent society. 
And so we include our children in ways, again, there are lots of wonderful things that happen because of that, but it also sort of takes away the child's freedom to sort of putz around and find out what it is that they really want to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, when I, I think as a child, I went out to eat at a restaurant once before the age of about 14. One time. That's a perfect example. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's absolutely perfect. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and also the restaurants weren't geared to your interests. No. You know, when, when <laughs> there were no rainforest cafes or whatever there, there is now for kids, it was, you, you went and, and it was a big deal. Yeah. And so it is, it is different. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sometimes hard for, for us older people to adjust and, and to understand why things that sh- would have been so exciting to us are just blase to the, to the kids. And, and then yeah. we get judgmental about it. We get judgmental and that makes things even worse. It does. And, and what you were saying before about, well, I didn't have this opportunity. Why aren't you embracing it? There's, there's some truth to both sides of that. Like we want to also instill in our kids a sense of gratefulness too, but that's not always the way to do it. Um, I think we've, we've got to look at that, but, but, but there's a, but there's another side to that too, is that we're saying to them, well, this is what I want to do. Why don't you want it as well? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So when you sat down to write this book, um, how did you decide on how, what to cover and how to structure it? Oh, what a great question. Nobody's asked me that question before. <laughs> That's great. So, so I think I started by trying to identify the problem, sort of get my arms around it. And it evolved because of the pandemic because I was writing this book about motivation when I was at one of the times in my life when I was unmotivated myself living alone at home with, you know, working remotely. And when uh, almost the entire rest of the world was sort of feeling like I was. So I really wanted to start by identifying why is it that some kids don't care much? And I have to then sort of look at the building blocks of why we care about things to begin with and started to look at motivation. What is motivation? What are the things that motivate us? And then started to look at, okay, what are the sorts of things that get us motivated? And so the way I structured the book was was talking about motivation in general, talking then about what I came up with, this idea of the parenting app, sort of breaking down motivation, but also its components of how we get re-motivated into looking at who we are, or what I call the aptitude, which is the A of the app, practicing, which is the things that we tend to do when we have time to do them, and the importance of practicing to, to develop motivation, certain things, and then also pleasure, the other P to that app. <laughs> and so I, I looked at those three things, our aptitudes, our pleasures and practices, and then also had to say, well, wait a minute, that's important too, but then we've got to take a step back. We've got to look at the context that the child lives in. It's not just about, all right, here's motivation, here's some tools to get motivated, but what's the family like? What's the society like that we look at? And then sort of took a step back and looked at, you know, knowing our child, but also knowing ourselves and understanding the societal factors that 
play into this and then sort of at the very end kind of saying, okay, we need a section of the book that really talks about, okay, how do we put all of this really into action and then talk about setting goals. So it sort of evolved. The, the process sort of evolved from one in, I have to understand the problem. Okay, now I understand it. Now I've got to look at the contributing factors and then saying, okay, I, I need to have another layer here. I need to really sort of think about what are the keys that help kids care more. And that came down to setting goals and learning how to be flexible as a way of staying motivated. Oh, that's interesting. Can you can you go into that a little more? Learning how to be flexible as a way of staying motivated. What does that mean? Yes. So so when I talk about yeah, when I talk about goal setting, we tend to think in our culture that goals are a static sort of thing. And I I talk in the book about how to set good goals, and I and we can talk about that too. But but sometimes it's it's kind of interesting to think about starting about the with the flexibility instead of the goal itself. So a flexible goals really play into something of what we call a growth mindset, and that was that's a term that was coined by a, a psychology and a researcher, Carol Dweck, who, who was interested in, in figuring out why some kids develop resiliency and some kids don't. And it's important in, in order to think about um, finding our, our joys to think about the fact that having a fixed mindset, thinking about a goal as being fixed, can often lead us to feel helpless. And so because oftentimes we don't meet our goals, it's really common to set a goal that we don't meet, at least not in the time that we expect to meet it. So having a flexibility in thinking about goals helps us think about, well, what do I need to do to fix the goal? Or was the goal a good one to begin with? Does the goal need to change? Does do I need to ask for help? And all of those things help a child and even us as adults build in this growth mindset that sees challenges as opportunities. So if you go through life thinking like, oh, I set a goal, I didn't meet it, you don't want to make new goals. You also don't ever reach the goals you set out to do. So having that kind of a mindset helps kids who are unmotivated because it, it helps them realize what they need in order to be more successful. And that's a way of helping us feel more empowered and more likely to find what those pleasures are in our life. Oh, that's, you know, it's, I can even see how this applies, like you said, to adults in adult life. So, you know, I um, am a founder, CFO of a fairly substantial business and, you know, with the well over 100 employees in the U.S. plus internationally. And we set goals every year. We call our blue chip goals, um, myself and my two partners, for everyone. And the end of the year bonuses are based on achieving those goals. And I've always been more like, okay, we set this goal. This is the goal. We don't change it mid-year. And my two partners are more like, well, if the environment changes, we need to change the goal because it needs to be achievable. It, it can't be not achievable because of something outside of our control. And and I've always pushed back on wanting it to be more fixed. <laughs> so I need to maybe think about oh. that again. <laughs> well, it doesn't mean like giving up the goal. It means to be fixed in order to reach a goal in some ways. Do you know yes. what I mean? Like yes. it, it, a goal yeah. can change. 
but yeah, it, they have to be well informed too. It's not just like, oh, you know, I'm not going to meet my quota and we just need to change. <laughs> change it, the quota. It, yeah. Really it's, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a fine line between changing a goal because, um, just because you didn't meet it because you didn't work hard enough and changing it because, something happened that was completely outside of our control, like COVID happened, you know? And so we, we yeah. made some changes to the goals that year because I mean, we didn't want to punish our, you know, we didn't want people to feel they had failed because of something that they had absolutely no control over. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And if somebody wants to change a goal, they've got to have good reasons for why it didn't work, really well thought out reasons for why it didn't work and ideas for how to then reach another goal that is just as, you know, important. Um, important. That's right. Yeah. That's it. Yes. Not just attainable, but just as important. Yeah. And yeah. so, but you're right. Even in parenting, it's the same thing. It's hard to determine, did my child give up because they can't do it or, or didn't want to do it? Or was it because they didn't have the right tools to be able to do it? Yeah. And so that's another thing to do is say, I'm not going to reach my goal unless I have the support of this, this, and this. And and to be able to identify that is a hard skill, but it's an important one. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and as a, in parenting and setting goals, you know, like as a business owner, I can set the goals for the business and even though we get input from everyone else, if I say this is what we want to do, it's sort of like, okay, they have to do it or if they want to keep their job. In um, parenting, if you're setting the goals for your child that are not attuned with what the child wants at all, there's times where you have to do that because there's times the child might not want to go to bed at night, but they need to go to bed. But there's other right. times where you really do have to the goals should be more coming from the child, from the parent. And you deal with that a lot in the book um, about how as a parent to look and see, are your expectations, it's not, are your expectations for your child realistic, but are your expectations for a child aligned with who that child is? Exactly. And, and that's such an important po point. And I also want to reiterate what you just said. This is not a, 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 book or, or even I, I, I don't even think this way and that kids should just do what they want. I mean, that's not what it's about <laughs> at all. In fact, if, if they have some freedom to choose some of the things that they want to do, it does make it more likely that they'll do the things that they're, they have to do. There are certain things as a parent, you are the expert, you know what is, and even for, for you as a business owner, you know what the company needs. These things are immutable. Right. But there are also times no one wants to work or live in a family where that's where all the goals come from the top. And so I do talk about, first of all, knowing your child. That's a big part of this and understanding their aptitudes, their abilities, but then also thinking about the fact that goals have to be chosen and not dictated. And you as a parent can help them figure out what goals are that are appropriate for them. But you also want to be able to, to 
have questions that open up a conversation about that. A lot of kids are goal-oriented, and to be honest, this book isn't really for them, although I've, I've heard other parents say, I, I could get out something out of this book, even for my kids, you know, I have more than one child in the family who does, don't have problems with motivation, but those need to be chosen, they need to not be dictated, and they need to be mastery-focused in that we want to make sure our kids can do those goals. And so the kinds of questions that I tell parents they, they need to use as ways of getting in into their child's head is to think about goal setting as an event, not as a process. And it's an event that should happen over and over again throughout the course of the year, throughout the course of a lifetime. And it's a skill that you want your kids to learn so that they're able to constantly use goals and also constantly revise them. And so you want to talk to your child about things like what makes you happy? What do you look forward to? What makes you feel excited? What are the sorts of things that are hard for you, but you like doing them anyway? And that's something that really we don't think about. But a lot of the things that we love to do as adults are things that are kind of hard for us, but we really enjoy them. And so finding that sweet spot between something that's too hard but something that's also too easy is a really good way of figuring out the kind of goal that are, that's achievable and also enjoyable. And you give some, you know, concrete tools for helping to figure those things out. And that's all part of this uh, parenting app, APP, the Aptitude, Practice, and Pleasure. Did you, and this, did you come up with that acronym? I we kind of played around with that acronym. <laughs> I also had a I had a um a, po- a, a, a master's degree student who was helping me. She was from Harvard and and she was she had done Teach for America and she was very good at helping me come up with some of these sorts of. She's in graduate school now and she helped me come up with some some of these acronyms. <laughs> but I sort of knew that there were that there we, we, you know we were trying to find some way of kind of talking about these three words in a way that it was form something that sounded, you know, right. not, um, like, yeah. Well, yeah. it's so, great. You yeah, know, it's a parenting I, I app. But now you, now you, in, yeah, you should yeah. probably make one that goes on your phone. <laughs> you should make oh, an app out of this. To do that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. You know what? Yeah. What are sorts of things I'm good at? How much time is I, am I spending them with yes, them? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Great idea. It is. Absolutely. So, yeah, so there's a, you have it spelled out here, you know, how to talk to your child to, to really drill down. I mean, you, as a parent, you know, to some extent, you know, what are your child's strengths and, and what do they enjoy? But, but you, that you may not know everything. And so you really. Right. Um, give a structure for, for how to talk to the child about these things. Yeah, now, I, I really tried to do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I need to uh, to uh, remind our listeners that this is Writers Voices, and we're speaking today with Dr. Ellen Broughton, author of Bright Kids Who Couldn't Care Less: How to Rekindle Your Child's Motivation. Now, one thing to really be um, aware of, which you you know certainly are in the book, and but for the you know parents to be aware of is that sometimes a lack of motivation is a sign of an actual mental illness, depression, or or you know anxiety that needs to be treated. 
you know, possibly medically, but you want to, you want to address that a little bit? Absolutely. That's such an important, that's such an important thing to consider here. So one of the things that, you know, anything that is going on for too long or interfering with development is something to be concerned at, concerned with as a, as a parent or a grandparent or someone who loves kids. And the three questions I ask myself is how often do the behaviors occur? How severe are those behaviors? And how much do they interfere with a child's life? So it's the intensity, the frequency, and the severity. So a child that's extremely demotivated is unmotivated a lot of the time. It's interfering with their ability to have appropriate social relationships. It's interfering with their ability to do well in school. And it's severe. And so those are the questions that you should ask yourself. You know, has the problem been going a long time? Is it chronic? Does it occur every day, most of most weeks? Or is it sort of an, a motivating sort of thing that happens at the end of the semester or when a your child doesn't have anything to do? Are there a lot of symptoms that, that might not seem to be too alarming in and of themselves, but when you add them up, they are? And is your child failing to progress at a rate the same as for peers? So those are the sorts of things that you want to ask yourself. And the, the kinds of behaviors you might see are difficulty paying attention, a lot of aggression or poor impulse control. They don't respond to your discipline techniques, you know, appropriate ones. They're, they're really on, it's so uncooperative that the family is constantly walking on eggshells and any sorts of really significant problems academically or with peers, any kind of outward feelings of real sadness, anxiety, or depression, those are the sorts of things that, that you really should seek more help in outside of just reading a book or, or even just you know, talking to other parents. Talk to your parents, or excuse me, to your child's teacher, to your pediatrician, or seek help from a, a counselor, a psychologist, psychiatrist. Thank you. When um, there's a couple things that you mentioned in the book that sometimes can trigger demotivation or lack of motivation for kids who were formerly motivated. And one of them I found interesting was um, a child who uh, had some kind of injury, uh, who played sports and loved a sport and then had an injury that doesn't allow them to play anymore. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I see this over and over. I almost was afraid to put this in the book because I was afraid so many parents would say, you're talking about my child, which, of course, all of the examples are, are, are about really no particular child at all. But it's so common that a child, and in, in part it's because we're sort of over-specialized in our culture. In a lot of areas of the country, kids play a single sport starting very early in life, sometimes as early as six or seven. They're doing hockey. They're doing soccer. And they are one sport kind of kid, and it becomes their life. And so what happens when something derails them, they are lost. They don't know what else gives them pleasure. They may not have even gotten pleasure from the sport itself, but it's just so much part of the family's life that when they have an injury, they don't know what else to do. And then there's also the, the issue of that happens in life to all of us at times where we are on a roll, where life is going really well and something happens. We get an illness. There's a loss of some sort. 
there's something like COVID that happens that really sets us back in a way that we have to reboot. And so I find that this can be a real big issue for parents when that kind of thing happens. And everyone thinks things will get back to normal on their own. And oftentimes it does. But what happens for a child who has a single sport, for example, where they are injured, let's say they're a hockey player, they play hockey every morning, they, that's their friend group. When they don't have that sport, they lose all of those other things as well. They lose their friends, their parents lose their purpose in some, in some ways. And this, the child, um, doesn't really have any other things to fill that gap. You know, that's something else that I've noticed has changed a lot about family life since like when I was a kid and when my kids were small, where the, when a child is in a sports activity, it can become the center of the entire family's life. Everything revolves You're around exactly that. right. Yeah. And boy, was that not the case. I mean, when I was a kid, if I wanted to be in a sport, I had to figure out how to get to and from practice by myself. You know, my parents weren't doing it. They, they maybe showed up when I was in high school, my dad showed up for a track meet a couple of times, but you know, it wasn't even expected necessarily that your parents would even come to the events. And now it's like, man, they're, the parents are there for every practice. They're there the whole time. They're so involved. Do you think that's healthy? Exactly. <laughs> in a word, no, <laughs> because you're right. Parents go to their kids practices now and yeah. and stay for the entire practice watch the practice critique the practice you're right that our parents did not come even to our games yeah. and i mean that was a problem when you never had a parent at a game but now if, if you don't make it to every game you're it, it's thought of as, as significant yeah and I, i'm not advocating that parents stop participating in life but it's too much it's too enmeshed. It's, it, there's too much of that, that the child doesn't get the chance to sort of be a kid without being tethered to the parent's gaze. Mm-hmm. And it is stressful. And it also leads them to, to not really kind of explore what it is that they wanted to do themselves. And one, um, I think we have a name for that sometimes, helicopter parenting, but um, there's a lot of degrees of that. And probably most, well, maybe not most, but a lot of parents probably are over-invested in, in their kids' activities. And then that leads to the problem with the child may not, want to do the things that bring the parent rewards basically <laughs> anymore. Right. They may not want to play the sport or they may not want to do the thing that the parent thinks be in theater if the parent always wanted to be in theater. And yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And and that over parenting, you're you're exactly right. It does it does cause kids to become unmotivated because one of the ways that they show parents that I don't want to do that because oftentimes kids don't have the words for that and they and also they're afraid they're going to be met by their parents saying what do you mean you don't want to be in theater I spent all this money on these theater lessons the theater camps they the kids just 
stop doing it altogether. And that overparenting tends to, to, to be a demotivator because it gives kids the message that you're proud of them only when they succeed and that you're terrified of them failing. And it also means that they get this idea that they rely on that external kind of reward instead of that internal reward that I'm doing this because I love it. No, it becomes this I'm doing it because somebody else wants me to do it. Mm. And it also it leads to like feelings of um entitlement because they feel like they deserve recognition. I mean there's a lot that that goes along with that and, and it's understandable. We will all be helicopter parents at one time or another. Right. It's absolutely true. <laughs> and and so the the way out of it or the way to to, to stay away from it is to reflect on your own childhood, to think about what helped you become more independent. Think about the things you didn't do yourself and do them for yourself. So let's say you always Uh. wish you were in the theater. It's never too late. (laughs) I mean, one way of really, really helping our kids is to figure out what we love and what gives us pleasure as a role model as opposed to, you know, putting them in the situation where, they need to find, you know, they need to, to, to fill the pleasures that we didn't have. We need to really do that for ourselves. That is perfect. That is the best idea. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes against in a lot of ways what we, you know, our, my generation, we, we had parents who never really, you know, like we were saying, didn't show up for the games, didn't show up for the practices. We're kind of in their own world, and yeah. we wanted to give our kids a different life. Well, there's a middle ground for that. A parents can be involved and have a life for themselves, but it's about knowing ourselves and knowing our kids. <laughs> exactly. I, I tell this story about my dad, um, who's been dead for um, over 40 years, so he's not going to be hurt by what I say. But <laughs> but um, he his parents paid for him to go to college. He went to an Ivy League school and um, he studied engineering. And when it was time for me to go to college, um, he said, I'm not helping you. <laughs> we always knew that. I mean, we never expected that they would, that he would, but you know, I'm not helping you. You do it. You're, if you want to go to college, you do it on your own. And that way you can do whatever you want. You don't have to, I think he felt like he, he ended up dropping out of engineer I mean he got the degree and everything but instead of working as an engineer at some point he decided that he wanted to be outside he didn't want to be behind a desk so he got a job as a land surveyor and um and then he wow. started an organic farm and he did theater and he did all these things that that he felt like he couldn't do when he was in college because his parents were paying for it and he had to do what they wanted him to do now I always thought, well, you know, so with my kids, I'm like, well, I'm going to help them financially and let them make the decision about what they want to do themselves. <laughs> so you can, you can oh, give them the great. assistance without the, uh, without the restrictions. <laughs> That's such a great, that is such a great, such a great compromise. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, uh, although, you know, and I, I will say that probably to some extent, my kids still sort of maybe made decisions based on what they thought I wanted. 
even though I didn't try to put that pressure on them? I'd have to, I'll have to ask them if that's true. <laughs> They're both in their I mean, 40s it, it, now, it, so. Yeah. It's definitely part of the relationship. It totally, no relationship is free from expectations and, and wanting to make others happy. So yeah. it, it's definitely part of it. it. It's really when it becomes excessive and when it, when it precludes your kids from having their own ability to also do that for themselves that it becomes important. Yeah. Yeah. Last night I was talking to my son about like, if he were to go back to school now, what would he study? And he said, he goes, well, I wouldn't, <laughs> he goes, I got bills to pay. I wouldn't oh, go back to school. Wow. But, um, but then he's, but then he said, admitted probably law. He'd probably go into law. And then he said, but if I, if I didn't have to make a living, he said, I would take, I'd go study cooking. And I'm like, I had no wow. idea he liked to cook that much. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> So it's, you can still learn about what your kids really enjoy, even at, you know, when they're in their 40s, you can exactly. learn new things about it. Exactly. <laughs> You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Dr. Ellen Broughton, author of Bright Kids Who Couldn't Care Less, How to Rekindle Your Child's Motivation. Ellen, would you like to read a little bit from the book for us? I would, thank you. And I'm going to be referring in this passage to some of the things we already talked about, the parenting app and the, the practice and the pleasure. Great. So, um, yes. Lots of kids who are unmotivated at age 14 were overscheduled as early as age six. There have been many books and articles about overscheduling kids. See my list in Chapter 12. And you should take a look at some of them if this is a big issue in your family. I mention it here because it's a big impediment to practice and to joy. Putting on the persona of not caring about anything becomes a child's way out of their overscheduled life. A life of being tired and constantly under pressure. Giving up on everything isn't a good coping skill, but some teens and preteens don't see any other option. Many overscheduled families are unhappy families, or at least not happy families. There's the constant time in the car, rushed meals, lack of sleep, little sense of mastery despite lots of time in pursuit of it. As overscheduled elementary school students move into high school, they typically move into one of two directions. The adolescent who continues along the path of overscheduling or the child who wants nothing to do with any of it. Embracing overscheduling isn't a good thing for many adolescents who are at least at, who are at, at increased risk for anxiety, eating disorders, and depression. For both groups, alcohol and drug use is high. Marijuana use is an epidemic for high school kids, and when they talk to me about it, they all say the same thing. I need to chill out. In other words, I've got too much to handle, and this is the best way I can find to relax. What's it like for them? Instead of giving you an example from a child in my practice, I thought I would share with you an experience I had myself. Maybe there are things in my story that are relatable to you or to your child. I call this section my middle-aged experience as a 12-year-old or why overscheduling can lead to a child to dislike his interests and aptitudes. 
In the process of writing this book, there was a worldwide pandemic. You might remember this. We all stopped working in offices. Some of you found that you were not cut out for homeschooling. Many confronted medical and health challenges and serious losses. It took us a long time to get back to normal. In the difficult months we all endured, I was quite fortunate. I could do most of my work from home, and I found I had more time on my hands than I did before. Or at least I was told I had more time on my hands, given that I didn't have to commute or spend moments picking out an outfit every day. I reacted to this event by scheduling myself as if I were a typical U.S. 12-year-old. I added lots of extracurriculars to my calendar. My twice-a-week private Spanish lessons, semester-long course in screenwriting, needlepoint instructions, online workouts, and book clubs, among other things, kept me quite busy. I had something after work almost every day of the week, and that's not counting the weekend conferences on topics ranging from how to write a great American novel to seminars on the best way to DIY your nails. Yes, there were seminars on this. I became way overcommitted, and as the editor of this book can attest to the fact that it slowed me down in at least one way, I learned a few things about myself that are easily applied to kids. First, parents hear the suggestion, don't overdo it. Pick one or two things as extra activities and stick to that. To be honest, few parents need this advice. But they really stop to think what their lives would be like if they had an activity every day after work. I can tell you what it's like. Exhausting. And I didn't have to get into a car and drive 30 minutes to class. There was no time to just chill. And though a lot of the courses were fun, I always felt behind. There was too much to do. And it was really hard to shift from Spanish class at 5 p.m. to a Zoom book club at 7.30, only to need to get up to bed early so that I could get up for my 6.30 a.m. fitness class. Unfortunately, this is what we ask kids to do all the time. It really takes the fun out of things that are supposed to be fun. This experience also taught me something about the parenting app. For example, I have no aptitude for learning a foreign language, but for a number of different reasons would like to be able to converse in Spanish. Despite not having an aptitude for it, as I practiced Spanish, it became more pleasurable because I started to understand what I was doing. Practicing more subsequently increased my aptitude or my ability for learning the language. However, because there were so many other competing activities, it was difficult for me to practice as much as I should, as much as I should have, in order to reap the benefits of practice. I'd have some time to practice, and I'd feel more confident, but then I remembered that I needed to read the book for Tuesday night's book club, and I wouldn't practice Spanish for four days. Much of the pleasure I'd started to feel about Spanish was gone because other things got in the way. Think about this analogy when considering your child's schedule. Sometimes kids simply don't want to practice, but at other times they're just too tired or busy to practice. You might see them start to enjoy an activity that might not have been completely easy for them, and after a brief period of enjoyment, they lose interest because they don't have the time for it to become pleasurable. This is one of the main reasons that overscheduling defeats the purpose of helping your child find activities where he can excel. Oprah has said, you can have it all, just not all at once. Although she made this statement about adults, it applies to kids as well. They've got a lifetime to learn all sorts of wonderful things. 
give them space and time to enjoy learning or to become competent at one or two things outside the school environment. My brief time as an overscheduled 12-year-old taught me that concentrating on just one or two things at a time would have been much more fun and fruitful. And that was Dr. Ellen Broughton reading from Bright Kids Who Couldn't Care Less, How to Rekindle Your Child's Motivation. So let's talk a little bit about college because that seems to be another thing that's sort of um, facing college applications, deciding where to go is another thing that seems to trigger demotivation in some kids. And why is that? Oh, I'm so glad you allowed me to bring this up. And, you know, you, you sort of alluded to this when you were talking about your son and how he would, if he had to do it all over again, he might have gone into cooking. So college is one of the things that I see as being a huge demotivator, especially for kids who don't want to go to college. So there, there are two things that happen. One is that the prep for college starts long before the junior year of of high school. It starts way back in middle school. It sometimes even starts earlier than that in pre getting into the right preschool, getting into the right, the right teacher. Even if you're in public school, I need the right teacher for my child's second grade is so, second grade is so important, for example. And we have this expectation that every child needs to go to college. And it's not that I'm saying that not every child deserves to go to college or deserves to, to have the post-high school experience that they deserve, but college really isn't for everyone. And, and I do say that this drive to get into college might be one of the biggest underlying causes right now for becoming under-motivated. So what happens is the higher-achieving kids are frequently caught in this cycle of achieving without being able to relax. Or they get caught in this in this cycle of achieving and over-relaxing, drinking, smoking mm. weed, doing all of those sorts of things on the weekend. And so, and it, again, it starts very early. So the way kids show us that they're either not prepared for college or too stressed out is by skipping school, getting poor grades not doing the work that they that they are expected to do or overdoing it, not sleeping at all. You know, there are the overachievers too who go to sleep at one in the morning, are up for their, you know, rowing team or whatever they do at early in the morning, and they're getting depressed and anxious and, uh, you know, unable to sort of cope. So, so my, from my vantage point, that drive to get into college leaves a lot of kids behind, and many of those kids start to not care. And some kids then who do buy into the, this whole college prep thing wind up participating in activities that don't interest them. And they see their peers as a competition, and their parents spend a lot of money on tutoring and test preparation, and everyone is unhappy and it leads to this sort of feeling sometimes that I see in kids who do reach college and they say, oh, this is what I've been working for all these years. And there are high rates of depression of kids in colleges, high rates of anxiety, high rates of, of dropping out or taking leaves from college. And I think it, this problem starts very early. Is it a lot harder to get into college now than it was 
30 years ago, 40 years ago? It's different. So what has changed? Uh, There's been a, a very different change in our thinking about college. First of all, for most of us, Many, many of a generation ago were some of the first generations to go to college. So going to any college was thought of as, as, as good, as great. Yeah. And a lot of people went to state schools and local schools. Now there's this idea that there is the perfect college. And the college process itself has changed in that we have what's called a common application. And so you can apply to lots of colleges by just hitting send. Mm-hmm. So what's happening is colleges, colleges are getting a lot more applications, and so it looks like it's harder to get into college because colleges are saying, we only take the top 20% or 2% or whatever it is. Well, part of that isn't because college has gotten harder to get into, but because the odds have gotten has made it harder. It's not that much harder to get into a college it's harder to get into a particular college that you might want to get into. Because more people are applying to that college because it's so easy to apply. I mean, back when my kids were applying or certainly when I was applying, you had to pay a pretty hefty application fee to every college you applied to. So is that not the case anymore? You still do. Parents are less. Um, unhappy about doing that, you know, our, our, our parents, you know, the generation <laughs> of our parents might have, have been quite different. Like, I'm not paying for, you know, 20 applications. Where now, we, again, it's, it's partly where we, you know, the kind of uh, affluent society that we live in. And, um, and, and if you don't have the money, colleges are happy to waive that. So it's, it's not, it, it's not just you have to have money. There, there are ways to, to get you know, the application mm-hmm. fees waived if, if you deserve to have that done, which is terrific. But again, it also opens up the, just the possibility. But, but the other difference was each application was different. So you had to fill out a different application for each one of those colleges. That's a lot of work. Yeah. And the other thing that was different is that you did it yourself. Now <laughs> there are you know, you can hire somebody to do that for your child. So it's just different. So more kids are applying sometimes to places that aren't really even right for them just because they can. Wow. Now you talk about how early this process started. I actually had um, an elementary school child ask me, what will they still be able to go to college if they don't do any extracurricular activities? In high school. Yeah, this is a, yeah, <laughs> it's a perfect, perfect example of how this starts earlier. And it's, it's definitely kids are aware of this. And, oh, yeah. it, and, and it's also, you know, it, it also isn't just an upper class problem that this pressure to perform, it sort of pulls in these affluent areas, but it doesn't stop there. And I, we've got to be, I, I want to be clear about that, that this hurts everyone. This fierce competition for admissions among that upper and upper middle classes raises the bar for all students and actually only, you know, serves to um, keep people who need the extra ability to, you know, that, 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 that to have external circumstances that I, I think allows them to have an extra, you know, ability to get in somewhere. They don't have that. So those opportunities don't, aren't available for them. So, you know, 
but and, and most students the, across. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say the truth is that there's probably there is a way for every child who wants to go to college to to do so. It's not like there's that most people that a lot of kids are getting shut out. Um, even if no. it's going to community college for two years and then transferring into um, the affiliated state schools that you might not have been able to get into right away, um, that actually exactly right. works really well for a lot of kids. Yes, the problem isn't that kids that colleges aren't plentiful in our country, and that and that you you can go to college if you want to. Like you said, there's community college. The problem is that we think that only college is the right way, that we, that there are some kids who are more interested in the trades. There are some kids who will really would prefer to go right from high school into the workforce. And we don't tend to think that's an okay way to do, to go. Or we don't even have a conversation with our kids about whether that's an appropriate way to enter adulthood. And so kids feel that pressure. And so it's, it, it, it's difficult. Well, I will speak as one. First of all, um, two things. One is that if you have an aptitude for trades, for carpentry, plumbing, electrical work, mechanical work, by all means, go that route because <laughs> because we need people who with those skills, and you're going to be able to make a lot of money doing that. <laughs> possibly more than your average college graduate coming out and going into a business environment. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. And secondly, um, I mean, I dropped out of college when my freshman year and tried to go back and then my dad died and I had to take over his business. I never finished and it hasn't stopped me at all. No, I think that's such a good point. And, and, um, and I really don't believe kids, kids who want to go to college should go to college. Kids who want a certain career that requires a college education should go. I just see a lot of kids who don't want to go to college who are not given the support, um, that they need in order to say, all right, you don't want to do it. Well, what's the plan then? You know, getting back to goal setting then. Okay, my goal for you is that everybody in this family goes to college. Well, what are the other options? You know, the the option is not, well, you know, I'm going to give you money to travel around the world. The option is, you know, what kind of job do you want? Do you want an apprenticeship? Do you want to go to a, a school where you're going to learn a trade? Do you want to start at a community college? Do you want to go to a coding school? Do you want to learn cosmetology? All of those things are valid ways of being an adult. And you're right. The data suggests now that going into one of the trades is just as good of a way of supporting yourself, especially right out of the, the starting block, too. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Because when you, if you're going to actually sit down and analyze it, the cost of going to college isn't just tuition and room and board. It's also the lost wages of the time yes. that you could be working. And for many people, that is... Um, they can't afford that, you know, they, if they come from a background where they really need to be able to um, to be earning money as, as early as possible or as soon as possible. So you if you really sat down, yes, a college, the average college graduate earns more over a lifetime. But 
um, what's the present value, net present. You'd have to do a net present value calculation to really compare. And depending on what you're doing, you might come out ahead and not going to college. That being said, I encourage That's everybody true. who wants to go to college, please go to college. It's it's a great a great um, experience for some people. Absolutely, and I think that yeah, yeah, and 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 I think that it's all about want and desire, and that's where that's that's what where we need to be thinking about. What do you want? What are your goals for life? What do you want to do? And you know, if you if you want to be a nurse, you don't love school. There's ways around that, okay, but nursing is important. Let's figure out how to make school successful for you. Let's, let's figure that out. But if you, if that's not a dream or desire of yours, uh, then you need to be able to, to shift and to, you know, go in a different direction. So. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, um, what, one thing that you want people to take away from this book? Oh, I think. The one thing I would like them to think about is to love the child you have, not the child you wish you had. Mm. And that's a really hard thing to do as a parent, <laughs> but I think a constant, like, this is who they are, this is who I am, and I love them for who they are, which is the best way to help them find the, the bliss and the pleasure and the motivation in their life. Oh, that's, that is a, a great thing. Love the kid you have, not the one you wish you had. Yeah, that's perfect. And we always like to end up um, our show with a quote. And I have a quote on motivation from Winston Churchill. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Oh, I love that. Oh, perfect. Oh, thank you. And thank you for being with us today. This was a great conversation. There's a, even, even if you don't have kids, this is an interesting book to read, um, cause it might teach you some things about your own motivation or lack thereof. So thank you once again and see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Mm-hmm.